Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Police have released the desperate 911 calls from the Louisville bank shooting. I just saw a, a, a shotgun as he was coming around the corner. Okay. See, people have been shot. Okay, we have it. We have it. We're going to get them up there, okay? Yeah, mass shooting. He shot probably 15 rounds. In a minute, we'll also play you the anguished call from the shooter's own mother. His family says he had mental health challenges that they were actively addressing as a family. So would a red flag law have worked? We'll show you what's happening in the states that have them. Plus, Mike Rowe is here with us tonight to describe the future of work. Is it remote? Is it AI-based? We'll also get his take on one of the dirtiest jobs out there, the newly appointed New York City rat czar. Also, baseball games are shorter this season, which means you've got less time to buy beer. Harry Enten will be here to tell us all of the unintended consequences of that rule. He's also crunching the numbers on the optimum beer drinking inning. So stay tuned for that. But let's start with what we've learned about the Louisville shooting. We have here tonight Vanity Fair's Molly Jean Fast. The one and only Mike Rowe is here. Polster Frank Luntz is here. And our favorite player on and off the court, Patrick McEnroe. All right, that's our last moment of levity, guys, for this segment, because, as I said, we have heard more of the 911 calls And Caitlin um, Collins just sat down with uh, the governor of Kentucky tonight, Andy Brashear, who lost a friend. I mean, he was choked up throughout this entire um, interview, basically, because someone close to him was murdered in this bank. So let me just play another portion of that interview for you all. I believe we can respect and honor people's Second Amendment rights to protect themselves and their family, but at the same time, at least take a step so that we can intervene when we know somebody's about to go out and murder a whole bunch of people. You know, a red flag law involves the court system. It ensures that everybody's rights are protected, that evidence is, is heard. It has every check on it that we could ask for. But at least it lets us stop that next individual, at least when we know, before they murder people. And listen, I know people will say that wouldn't have stopped this situation, and it probably wouldn't have. Maybe it will the next one. I don't want another family to go through this. Mike, I'll start with you. I mean, it's impossible to know what would have stopped this one, but they did say that he had mental health challenges. He did leave a note uh, for his family and for his roommate. And one of them, he said he was suicidal. What are your thoughts? Ugh. Why you got to start with me? Well, because I haven't talked to you about this. And I have talked to many of the other people on our panel about yeah. this. And honestly, I'm we're always looking for solutions, and it's so mystifying in a case like this because he doesn't fit what our image is nope. of the deranged loner. Nope. And yet, it sounds like he had a bad week. He yeah. bought the gun six days earlier. He was having mental health. He had a bad week. And because of access to guns, a bad week turns into a mass shooting. Well, 
If it's just because of access to guns, then yeah, there's a real simple solution to this. But speaking only for myself, I, I don't think it's just access to guns. I think it is mental health. And I think there's some other things that is as desperate as we would love to be able to quantify it and spell it out. It's not there. We can't, we can't look into the future. We can look back at the past. And we can probably conclude some things, but at this moment in time, I'm just, I just feel nothing but, but pity for the, for the survivors, for the victims, for their families, and all the usual stuff that just sounds so platinitudinous and ridiculous and, and empty. But it's, And you're, are, you're, you're, are you a gun owner? Oh, yeah. I grew up with guns. You grew up with guns. And so what's your feeling about guns? You need one. You're comfortable around them. You're less comfortable now. I've always been comfortable around them. I enjoy shooting, um, and it makes me very, very angry, A, to see people abuse this right, and B, to see people make excuses for people who abuse this right. Whatever the magic formula is to somehow figure all of this out, I'm sorry to sound you know, retrograde on it, but there's punishment there has to be a consequence. This guy, if I'm, forgive me, there's so many I conflate mm-hmm. them, but did he, he live streamed it, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's another weapon, by the way. The phones that we all have within two inches of us right now. This thing is a very, very, very powerful weapon. We turn it on, we point it, we say what we want. We're influencing, right? We're chronicling our own life in yeah. some kind of horrible version of, some terrible movie in our mind. Look, I, I think there's a parallel that not enough, not enough people talk about between the impact of your phone with that camera on it. I can, I can live stream right now to six million people mm-hmm. on my Facebook page. Six million people. Yes, but right? your point is that, he, that we have the, the ability to traumatize with it? I'm saying that we have the ability with that device to turn the First Amendment upside down in the same way that that guy has the ability with that device to turn the Second Amendment inside out. Yep. And those two amendments, last I looked at the math, are in the top three. They matter. And when people abuse them like this, to answer your question, it just makes me angry and sad, except for those times when it makes me sad and angry. No other country lives like this. I mean, besides Syria, we have the highest number of mass shootings. We are shooting among shooting among shooting. I mean, every you know, there were two shootings in the last you know five days. I mean, these are mass shootings. We have so many children killed by guns. Guns are like the second, you know, the first or second highest thing that kills children. Yes. I mean, I we are out of control. This is not a well-regarded militia. This is craziness. And like, nobody has ever been killed by a phone. Like, I understand that there might, that the media has power, but like, the, we are literally seeing children who are scared to go to school, who are traumatized by the drills. I mean, this is not, we don't have to live like this. Frank? We have a constitution. And yet... I've read the Second Amendment. Not every individual should have the right to buy any gun at any time for any reason anywhere in America. That there is a sensible, reasonable, responsible approach that involves both some sort of restrictions and addressing the human dynamic of this. 
because if we eliminate every gun, it says that we don't believe in this Constitution, we don't believe in that document. But it doesn't mean that every gun should be available all the time. And the problem is the Democrats come across as wanting to take your guns. The Republicans come across as not caring. And they're both wrong. And I'm not sure that those are the accurate perceptions, but there's so much emotion that's tied to this and so much division and so much polarization that we cannot solve it because we don't want to act reasonably. We take an extreme point of view. And so this show is going to do this segment again and again because it's going to happen again and again. Oh, we do it all the time. I mean, we keep having this circular conversation, but occasionally there are suggestions, Patrick, that ring logical. And for instance, in Florida, okay, red state, Florida, DeSantis is Florida. After Parkland, they passed um, red flag laws. And since that time, it's remarkable. In just the past six months, okay, so in a six-month chunk, six or seven months between July 2022 and February 2023, 2000. Um, protection orders. In other words, red flags. A judge agreed 2,000 times Mm -hmm. that a gun had to be taken away somebody for their own self-harm or a danger to others. That's just in recent, you know, six months. Before that, it's something like 8,700 times. So it's working Mm -hmm. there, in other words. Judges are seeing a reason that people shouldn't have guns. One more thing I want to show you before I let you chime in, and that's in Connecticut, which also has a red flag law, Duke Law School determined through their study that for every 10 to 20 guns removed by a red flag law, they stopped one suicide. There's no doubt, Allison, that the red flag law would help, okay? There's also no doubt that citizens having AK-15, AR-15s and these weapons of war that they can just go out and buy like they're buying candy at Walmart is absurd. It's just completely absurd. But let's go to the, to the heart of the matter. And, and I'm trying to take the emotion out of it because this is emotional for all of us. I mean, and everybody says now on television, we, you know, we can't become numb to it. Well, guess what? I'm becoming a little bit numb to it because how else are we going to survive? This is becoming such a regularity. But let, let me go to my larger point. These, we are a country that has been built upon capitalism and built upon people taking chances and taking risks, all the great things that go along with that. But we're also a country that's got to be about laws and about reason and rational laws. And we've lost it. Why have we lost that when it comes to guns? We all know why. We could talk about the Second Amendment. That's obviously extremely important. It's money. This is about money. And the gun ownership and the NRA and and this is a massive business. Every time one of these things happens, what happens? People go buy more guns. And more guns is going to solve this problem? I mean, that's the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard. And Mike, who's obviously someone that is a gun owner and respects that, and you can see just by the way he's talking how much it hurts him to have to talk about this. But the reality is, is that the average American in this country wants their guns more than they want anything else. Anything else. I don't I'm, know what, that's true. That's, that's not actually. I mean, well, they I, want common sense. What, I'm, I'm glad Frank is sense. here because I always hear, you know, he talks about all his polling. Yeah. And I don't believe that people, I don't believe what people say when it comes to guns. It's like, it's like, it's a, it's a little bit like talking about racism. Are you racist? Who's going to say, yes, they're racist. There's a lot of people that are racist. There's a lot of people, a lot more people than I think we're acknowledging 
that want to have gun more than they want to have the security and safety. I can give you numbers. Isn't it that the politicians are just not reflecting what the uh, regular Americans want? That's because of money. Go ahead. NRA members. We actually polled NRA members about this. And they support some limitation of some sales and some guns. NRA by 70% or 80%. And there's some ways, which is just by delaying the purchase, that you can't walk into a store right now and get that gun and go out and use it. They're fine with this. So there are... But why doesn't it happen? But it, because, because the politicians are afraid. Because, right. because they're the afraid of losing their jobs. Because many people, well, the, in addition to the corp companies, many people, if the people some, rose up right. and walked to the but, Capitol or walked, just as they were doing in, in uh, Kentucky, right? Or in Tennessee. The yeah. people got motivated and they actually went up. That's, to me, the only way this is ever going to change and these actual laws are going to be enacted is if the actual people say, you have to do it to the politicians. They're not saying that now. Well, that's happening in Tennessee. I mean, they're still having protests. I mean, I don't know Good. that it works, but I do think ultimately the Republican, the, a lot of Republicans, and I, I don't see it as much on the Democratic side, are, are sort of hostage to the base, and the base does not want any kind of gun. But they, they did advertising. Yeah. Quickly, Frank. They did advertising, and they made gun owners look like they were hicks, southern hicks. Right. They're good, law-abiding people. They're decent people. They're Mike Rowe. Right. And they should not be demonized. And that's yeah. the problem is that they're trying to score political points rather than trying to get the job done. All right. Thank you all very much sure. for that conversation. Uh, next, we're going to talk about the future of work and how much our jobs have all changed, including one particular job. We're going to talk about New York City's new rat czar. How much would they have to pay you to do that job? There's a price. We'll talk about it next. Uh-oh. I'm going to regret saying that. All right, we want to talk about what the future of work looks like. Will we all be back in the office together someday? Will we all be working alongside robots? But first, we want to tell you about a very unique job that was filled today. New York City hired a rat czar. You heard me right. The job description called for someone who is, quote, highly motivated and somewhat bloodthirsty. With a swashbuckling <laughs> attitude, crafty humor, and general aura of badassery. <laughs> the lucky woman who landed this gig, Kathleen Karate, a former elementary school teacher who the New York Times reports will make $155,000 a year. My panel is. Give her a raise. <laughs> How much would it yeah. take? How much would it take, Patrick, uh, oh for my, you to can get Can I do that it job? remote? Like, how many days no, a week? No, you have to be in there. Because you're going to there. actually get the rats, right? Well, I don't, you don't have to have a net where you're, like, in the subway system grabbing the rats, but you have to, I think, be pretty hands-on. Maybe we'll go for 160. <laughs> okay, for 160. you would have held out yeah. for that. Okay, yeah. Frank, what would you, what would you charge I for that? I thought you were about to describe Congressman Santos. <laughs> <laughs> so. No, that does not require badassery. That requires something entirely different, a different skill set. Truth serum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the other, I thought just the skill set. It's so funny how they did this, how they filled this, and how humorous they were. So the skill set requires... Um, You have to be determined to look at all solutions from various angles, including improving operational efficiency, data collection, technology innovation, trash management, and wholesale slaughter. Wholesale slaughter. (laughs) That's the best kind of slaughter. That is the best kind. How much would it take for you? How much money? I live in New York City. There are so many rats here. I'm telling Mm. you. I mean, I was at a restaurant yesterday where I heard a squeak, squeak in the outdoor. Yeah, those outdoor. There's a lot of rats here. 
No. I'm not naming it. I only have like we, four we can, places I go. You can get a lawsuit going right here, right now. <laughs> but they're rats. The city is a big rat city. I mean, this is our thing. Oh, we it's a big job. More rats than Yeah, people. Mike, I feel like in all of your dirty jobs, somewhere along your laundry list, this must uh, was rodent mitigation ever we did a huge rat abatement program uh in new orleans not long after katrina place was i mean overrun like unlike anything i'd ever seen but i'm surprised your producer didn't find footage you know i had a show on cnn a couple years ago called somebody's got to do it back in 2014 Mm -hmm. and one of the first segments we did (laughs) i profiled this group of people who have rat terriers and they just call them ratters, right? These are dogs with incredible drive, bred specifically for the purpose of hunting rats. And these guys met downtown like about 10 o'clock at night. And they'd stay out until 2 a.m. with this pack of rat terriers. And when they, we watched those rats kill maybe 50. The dogs the killed dogs. the rats. The, ter- the, the dogs yeah. the terriers. Yeah. Torment half. I mean, oh. it is a bloodbath. Oh. So here's the qualification. That tape right now. Here's the qualification this person needs. They need to be prepared for the blowback that they're not expecting. Because when the public sees piles of rats piled up, believe it or not, as unsympathetic as we all feel right now, I got more hate mail for that segment (laughs) for celebrating the death of about 50 rats. Can't you clean up the mound of rat carcasses before people wake up and go to work? No, I think that it's an important part of the job. You leave the carcasses there to, A, send a message <laughs> to, to the, the other people rats. and to the other rats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Let them know you're yeah. not messing around. That's appalling, Mike. I knew you were going to have a story. I didn't know it was going to be that graphic. <laughs> that is fantastic. You've got the footage if you want okay, it. Okay, well, there. we'll be digging that up momentarily. They're finding it. They're, they're telling me they're finding it right away. Okay, <laughs> meanwhile, let's talk about the rest of our jobs. So what is the future? What does the future of work look like, Mike? So you know what? Not to go back to the last segment, God help us, but so much of what goes on in these conversations is painting with a really broad brush. And in my view, I run a foundation. We try and stay in our lane. I don't know about the future of work in general, but I do know that if you have mastered a skill that's in demand, plumbing, steam fitting, pipe fitting, welding, electric, heating, air conditioning, There's never been a better time to be alive and working in this country. You can set your own hours. You can write your own ticket. You can work as much or as little as you want. You can join a union if you want or not if you don't. It is a terrific time to master a skill that's in demand. You know what's very interesting is that there used to be um, a prediction, Patrick, that AI was going to replace those jobs. But now the Wall Street Journal (laughs) says it's actually the opposite. We had it wrong. And the Wall Street Journal says, as long as artificial intelligence has existed, so have the predictions that it would disrupt and someday replace blue-collar work. Now, according to a new study by researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and OpenAI, most jobs will be changed in the form by generative pre-trained transformers, or GPTs, which use machine learning based on internet data to generate any kind of text from creative writing to code, meaning white-collar jobs. Those kinds of jobs are the ones that will be replaced. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think Mike said, I'm glad he said that, because I think that, I don't think we do enough in this country for blue-collar type jobs. You know, there should be more training, there should be more, it should be a better route to take. I do think, though, that the working from home, the office, you see that a lot in the financial world, right? The big companies. And to, to Mike's point, 
the people that are in the most, the highest demand have the most flexibility, right? Those, because you know those companies, those big companies, they need the best people. So the, the better off you are in your, even go back to sports, you know, my thing in sports, like you're the be, one of the best basketball players. You see them all, you know, they're changing teams now. They're making their own rules. Even the college players now, the best college players, you see with this NIL, they're playing for one year for one school. This one kid's in North Carolina, and now he's going to Michigan next year. So, you know, if you can pull it off, why not? Be the best of whatever, Be the best you, whatever, whatever you do, you want to do whether yeah. you're a plumber or you're a basketball player. But we need to change the language because it's not a job. It's a career. And the public by two to one wants a career over a job. Right. Number one. Number two is you get to own your career. Plumbers who have three or four people working for them are making more than lawyers. Right. And number three is you don't have to go into debt like you have to do in so, much, so many universities. There has never been a better time for this. The problem is that there are too many teachers who are telling their students they have to go to a traditional college and get a traditional, have a traditional career, when in fact, this is more financially rewarding. You get to control your hours, you get control, to control who you work for. You are absolutely right, and there are a few politicians now, and I hope you're working with them, who have changed the focus of the education system in their states to promote career education. Stop calling it vocational and they're not blue-collar jobs. They're mm-hmm. actually self-employed careers. Mm-hmm. The thing, Frank, that I've seen, and I'm, you probably have research on this, is that so much of this comes down to something we always dismiss, which is PR. Right. The stigmas, the stereotypes, and the myths, and the misperceptions that keep millions of people from exploring these careers, they're real, right? Every time I talk about the welders that we've helped train who are making mid-six figures, people just go, what are you, that, that's not possible. And then I show them that it's possible. And all of a sudden we're having a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But until the trades get better PR broadly, yep. we're going to keep lending money we don't have to kids who can't pay it yep, back right. to train for jobs that don't well, exist anymore. Okay, hold on. Hold that thought because your wish is uh, our command. <laughs> we have found the oh, micro shut up. Come on, hunting rats. Oh, wow. Hunting really? rat video. Here we go. Oh, what? oh no. Uh-oh. Are we about to see one attack? Oh. oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. There's no way they're going to show the thing seared <laughs> in my retina. But I saw a rat the size of a loaf of bread get torn in wow. half by oh. two dogs oh. playing a tug of war with the thing. That is revolting. Oh, wow. Right? Not three blocks from here. That is so That's revolting. Right. That's some strong production work. Well, that, yeah, that was great. It yeah. was very like uh, cinema verite. It was like noir. It was, it's noir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, in yeah. those days, I, I was all black and white. Yeah. I could see that. That was excellent. All right. That was great. Everyone stay with us. Should college come with a trigger warning? Students at one school say yes. My panel has thoughts on this next. Students at Cornell University want trigger warnings on upsetting material that could be discussed in class. In a resolution, the university's student assembly wrote that including these warnings, quote, gives respect and acknowledgement to the effect of triggering content on students with PTSD, both diagnosed and undiagnosed, whereas doing so makes the discussion of sensitive academic topics more predictable, therefore balancing the academic freedom of instructors to teach with the needs of the student body. Well, the university president turned that resolution down writing, quote, we cannot accept this resolution as the actions it recommends would infringe on our core commitment to academic freedom and freedom of inquiry and are at odds with the goals of a Cornell education 
Learning, learning to engage with difficult and challenging ideas is a core part of a university education essential to our students' intellectual growth and their future ability to lead and thrive in a diverse society. My panel's back with me. <laughs> My panel's back with me, and if they could, they'd give it a standing ovation. Uh, Frank, life is triggering. Life is triggering. Life is stressful. And I think what Cornell is saying is get used to it. But it's more than that. We talk about the importance of diversity in society. At a university campus, isn't intellectual diversity the most important? I teach at USC, and the fact is, most of my students have never had a conservative professor, or maybe one. I ask them how many conservatives come onto campus. Almost none of them do. I don't want to make a case for conservatism. I know that where I teach, in, and I teach all over the globe, the only school that I have found that is truly, deeply, in every possible way committed to the truth is West Point. <laughs> and they have to be because their lives are at stake. We're all just playing a game. They're the ones to protect our rights, our privileges, our constitution. And those students are the best. I love my USC students. I love my NYU students. But the ones at West Point would look at that and say, that's pathetic. But to be clear, they're not talking about conservative. This isn't about partisan stuff and about political stuff. They want a heads up on material that's like about sexual violence or suicide. Get used to life. That's what this show. You talked about death as the first segment on the show. These things happen and we can't have that conversation anymore or we have to warn people about this. Come on. That justifies the whole claim about the snowflake culture. <laughs> It justifies. It really does. Mike's how, enjoying this. How is that kid? How is that kid going to deal with the live streaming mass murder? I don't want them to have to deal with the live streaming mass murder. I don't either. But they're going to have to because it just went live. Well, it just happened. Right. It's just it's we are surrounded. Frank said it perfectly. The world should come with the trigger warning. Yes. And then we should get on with I agree. It. But but again, to play devil's advocate, we even give our viewers, we say we have disturbing video coming up, which we, makes them go. Thing, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. But I do mean, they tear the rat in half. What am I going to see next? Sometimes some people do. But but I feel like we do t give them base. That's basically a trigger warning. I mean, in another because word. you're afraid of your own viewers. No, I, because we want to let people know something really upsetting is about to come up. If you want to turn away, go ahead right now. I, I, mean, I, I sorry, go ahead, Molly. I, I don't know that we need to extrapolate so much from this. I mean, I, I think they're welcome to ask for it if the university doesn't want to do it. There are people who have been raped. There are terrible, you know, there are people who have had mass shootings in their schools. You know, you give that kid American Psycho, they may feel very uncomfortable. I don't think it's. You know, we're not saying don't give them the book. They're saying that we just like a heads up. I mean, I don't think that's the craziest want. I mean, and I think the college is well within its rights to say I, no. I think it's common sense. It's common sense. I mean, I, I actually agree with the guys, but I, I think Molly hit it because it, in this, this was a situation where it was, a, I believe it was a couple of young women that were reading, like you said, Allison, something to do with rape or sexual abuse. And this one particular student had some history involved with this. So in that case, w wouldn't it be nice if it was the teacher sort of took the prerogative, not, not legislated by the university or some directive, but the teacher who knows their students, who knows, you know, this could be a sensitive, to give them a little bit of a heads up that wasn't, wasn't part of the curriculum, but it was just the right thing to do. Is it crazy to think that 
common sense at a big time university and it starts would be the there. way to go. Yeah. But it starts there. And then you have to do it every time you mention Donald Trump. And then you're going to have to do it every time you mention something about Israelis versus the Palestinians. And it's a never ending challenge. And we have to get on with life. And we have to learn how to deal with, with trouble. We have to learn how to deal with crises. And we can't warn people that things are going to happen that they won't want to hear. And my fear is that this will be used by other schools to actually shut down political conversation. But, but okay. And we're banning I, and, books. And, right. I'm what, not what is, right. But that's not the left that's banning books. That's the right. Right. But, I'm, but it's not left or right. Right. It's it's. We have to stop right. seeing everything but, as left or right. Right, but I'm not saying that they should ban these books. I'm just saying that a heads up, you know, and, and more just that these students are welcome to ask for a heads up. You know, I have uh, teenagers and I would be proud if they had sort of, you know, if, especially if they had a friend who was a victim of sexual violence and who was, you know, tra- you know, upset by something and, and asked. I mean, and I think the school has every right to say no, too. I mean, I do think that a discourse that's not too hot and that's just talking about this is the right thing. And again, and you and I have talked about this book banning thing is bananas, right? As, as a and, professor, I don't want to be afraid of my students. As a professor, I want to feel comfortable challenging them. I want them to hear from people they never heard of. I want them to see things that they hadn't seen. I want to truly educate. I mean this. I want to educate them. I want to be a teacher, not a professor. How about one step further? How about make... Do you want them to be uncomfortable? Do you want them to have doubts? Do you want them to really be uneasy? I do. I want them to embrace it. Right. Right. Look for it. Look for the show. Any, any moment, any of the four of us could say something that gets us banned from the show because we use the wrong language. We embarrass ourselves. I embrace that because it requires me to think. It requires me to ponder. And I don't think we teach that of our kids. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I think that part of growing up is learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You right. know, learn, get, but- finding a comfort with discomfort and they have to get used to that. But I also see what you're saying. Like, would it, would it kill somebody to say, guys, by the way, there's going to be a rape scene in this book. Just no, it would listen. not. I mean, Absolutely but would then not. the question is what happens next? Then do the I students understand. say, that, I don't want to read that. Seeing, right? That's why right, I say common see, sense. Except you're seeing in Florida, right? I mean, they're taking away books that make people uncomfortable. I know. So, you're going to turn the classroom into the last 40 seconds of every pharmaceutical commercial <laughs> where the entire thing is, okay, now you might be offended at this and that. And you might be offended at this and this and this. Except it's not going to be the end of the commercial. It's going to be the beginning of the commercial. And might cause diarrhea. Yeah. And <laughs> by the way, Lord of the Flies, mm, Piggy gets it in the end. Have a nice day, everybody. Go home. Now you're smart. Thanks right? for ruining it for yeah, us. Really? And by the way, why doesn't this ever happen in trade schools? Just saying. Okay. Back to the I like how you work that back. See how it happens. Land in the plane. They're not trade schools, they're career schools. There we go. There we We've go. already there changed the language. Yeah. Uh, to your colleges. Thank you all. To your colleges. Thank you all very much for that conversation. All right. Make sure you stick around at the top of the hour because we're going to dive into several stories with our panel of phenomenal reporters, including CNN's Arlette Sines, who has the details of yet another 2024 GOP presidential contender. But first, more beer. That's what some MLB teams are saying, selling beer later in the game. What are the risks? What are the benefits? We'll discuss.
Those were the Chicago Cub fans in 2015, raising their beers in tribute to the legendary Harry Carey. Nailed it. Uh, With his rousing rendition of Take Me Out to the Ball Game in the seventh inning stretch. That's the inning when baseball teams have traditionally stopped beer sales. But now games are getting shorter, and teams like the Arizona Diamondbacks and Minnesota Twins and the Milwaukee Brewers, the Brewers, are selling beer through the eighth inning. That could have some unintended consequences, and there's nobody better to help us understand this and crunch the data data on beer. <laughs> then senior data reporter Harry Enton, my panel, is also back. <laughs> Harry, how much time have you spent, or how many beers, I guess, did you have you um, drank to research this? Uh, only segment? diet A&W cream soda. That was why I was asking you before <laughs> about favorite. your cream soda preferences. Um, what look, do we need to know here? Here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know. You need to know, number one, that baseball games are on average this year about 31 minutes shorter than they were last year because of the pitch clock that they've instituted, that essentially they wanted the games to be shorter because they thought the long games were keeping fans from watching games, especially young people like myself. But here is the unanticipated consequence, right? Essentially what has occurred is that means that now you have less time to sell beer. About, I think it was uh, about 24 minutes on average or so, less time to sell beer. And that, of course, is something that MLP... MLB teams don't necessarily like because it turns out using, let's say, Minute Maid Park, which is where the Houston Astros play, for example. Uh, last year, I believe they sold about $28 million worth of alcohol. Uh, now, some of that was from concerts, but the vast majority of it was from baseball games. So my estimate is that they might have lost, you know, somewhere in the area of a few million dollars based upon these new uh the new timing rules. So they're trying to gain some of that back by going to sell alcohol for eight innings instead of seven innings. Oh, so they have a solution to this national problem. This, yes. is, this is going to be a national crisis, but they have a solution. They, they Apparently, they have a solution to this nas- national crisis. But, of course, there are unintended consequences to this, Such right? As? Such as the fact that now you're going to be selling alcohol closer to the end of game time, right? And that may lead to more people on the roads who perhaps perhaps have had too much to drink. And more than that, there was a very interesting study that came out of uh, the University of Pennsylvania that showed that when you had extra inning games, that is games in which you would have more time in between the end of beer sales or the end of alcohol sales when people actually hit the road, it turns out that there was less violent crime in and around the stadium. Huh. So there's a lot to this beer there's, sales thing. You think it's a small thing, but, but no. it's in fact <laughs> a very large thing. Yes. Um, Mike, why are you uh, rolling the hairy eyeball? Here? Well, what do you do with doubleheaders, right? We, we I do mean, extra innings obviously is a thing. It's just this just makes me thirsty right now. <laughs> <laughs> right now in real time, I, we'd be fools not to be closing out this whole thing. You're so right. We need beer right now. I mean, again, just for research purposes. Of course. Yes. Um, Can can, can I bring bring my my athletic background here? Yes, please. Thank goodness, because I love baseball, and I'm bored, you know what, watching a lot of these games, particularly during the regular season. The uh, playoffs is a little bit different. I love what they've done with the pitch clock. We did it in tennis a couple years ago with the serve clock. It makes the games move much quicker, and you know what? They're getting in their cars. They got a little more time. You see, it's Harry. They just don't want them walking to the cars with the beer in the hand. Okay, whether it was the sixth or the seventh or the eighth inning, hopefully they didn't have too many. They could take an Uber. Got it. Okay. Um, Frank, we only have uh, about 30 seconds left, so I'll give you the last word. I'm so glad to do this show because I'm glad to meet you. (laughs) I really appreciate all that you've done for the ignored and forgotten. You have given people the respect that they deserve for doing the jobs that they had to do. 
and they want to do. You've celebrated them. You are a treasure in this country. And to be on this show with you, I like you all, but you're special, and this is such an honor. You're making me blush. (laughs) Thank you. Our next round of Work Ethics Scholarships is happening right now. Anybody's welcome to apply. Shameless Where can we go? Sorry, microworks.org. These are not for four-year schools. These are for trades. We got $2 million. We're giving it away next month. Apply today. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for those sentiments, Frank. Stay with us. Arnold Schwarzenegger is getting his hands dirty with a dirty job. There was a huge pothole, okay, in his street, and he went and filled it, which is great, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger, big celebrity. But turns out maybe it wasn't a pothole after all. We'll explain. Arnold Schwarzenegger taking matters into his own hands, filling a pesky pothole in his Los Angeles neighborhood. Here's what he posted to social media. You won't come. You won't come. But you have to do it yourself. I mean, this is crazy. For three weeks I've been waiting for this hole to be closed. The neighbors were so grateful, but it turns out it wasn't a pothole. It's a city-approved service trench for Southern California gas. Micro is back. How many times have you mistaken a pothole or a a trench? It's not a trench. (laughs) It's a pothole. So I just feel like you have filled your share of potholes. Am I right? Well, it's embarrassing. We're here in the break, and I'm just, I told you. Like, if I Google micro manhole or pothole, Like, there are eight pages of it. We just literally did a segment on Dirty Jobs with manhole rehabilitators. Yes. So we went to Tennessee, and we went into these manholes, and we spray this magic stuff on the walls, and it extends the life of the sewer system by 50 years, and it's sweaty and disgusting. Yeah. And so it's a hole. But you don't fill it up, for crying out loud. (laughs) Arnold, you put a a cover on it. That's a manhole. (laughs) But he thought this was a pothole because... It's I, a trench, Matt. <laughs> Arnold is, the, like, his resume is brilliant. He's done a lot of great work. The governor, for God's sakes. But a hole is round and goes down. A trench is, is horizontal, man. <laughs> this, this is a rookie mistake. You don't fill in a trench, folks. You, you see an empty trench in your street. Just walk on by. If only he had called you. For the definition. You know the definition between a pothole and I'm a easy service to find. trench. I'm out there in California. That's I'm right. up there. You can call me down. Arnold, you just, we'll fill in some trenches, holes, whatever you want. Because it, I mean, it seemed great because, you know, you don't often see like famous celebrities and former governors out there, you know, dealing with asphalt. All right, let me say something kind of lousy, though, and, and like suspicious. I mean, it's filmed. Somebody filmed it and then somebody posted it. So what's really going on? I mean, is this an altruistic thing or was this? I mean, I'm not. I'm just saying if I saw somebody as famous as Arnold Schwarzenegger out in front of my house filling in a hole. Yeah, I guess I would expect to see somebody filming it. Yeah, you would think something was up. Next thing you know, you're chasing rats with terriers. You got your own TV show. Then you're sitting here talking to you. Bingo. Now we see what was going on there. Uh, Mike, such a pleasure. So great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Am I seeing you tomorrow? I'm going to be in the city. If you got a, if you got an empty chair, I'll come by. Fantastic. This was fun. Great. Great to have you. All right, coming up, some of our best reporters are here to share the scoops that they have been working on this week, including a judge scolding Fox's lawyers, 
sanctioning the company in the Dominion lawsuit. And there's another 2024 presidential contender. All of that and more with our fabulous reporters. I'll join them in a moment next. Welcome back to CNN Tonight. This hour, we're talking with some of our favorite reporters about their scoops on the stories that they are covering for us this week. Here with me tonight, we have Shimon Prokipes, Arlette Sines, Harry Enton, and Rahel Solomon. So let's jump right in. Uh, Republican Senator Tim Scott announcing the launch of his presidential exploratory committee today after months of testing the waters. And he's starting with a listening tour and visits to Iowa. So what is the path for Tim Scott, Arlette Sines has been talking to her sources. So, Arlette, let's start with who is Tim Scott? How is he introducing himself and selling himself to voters? Yeah, listen, this is the introductory period for yet another Republican who might be entering the race. He is just doing in that exploratory committee a period now. But Tim Scott, the senator from South Carolina, has long been seen a, as a rising star uh, within the Republican Party. He is the lone uh, black Republican senator in Congress at this moment. And in his uh, announcement launch, he really leaned into his own personal history. That's something that people close to him believe is something that will be a big selling point with people. The son of a single a mother who grew up in poverty. And he really emphasize that as he tried to uh, talk about what he can offer to the American people, but also offer um, some type of connections with them as well. Should we listen to did, yeah. did, Okay, so let's listen to a little bit of how he was introducing himself. I was raised by a single mother in poverty. The spoons in our apartment were plastic, not silver, but we had faith. We put in the work and we had an unwavering belief that we too could live the American dream. I know America is a land of opportunity, not a land of oppression. I know it because I've lived it. That's why it pains my soul to see the Biden liberals attacking every rung of the ladder that helped me climb. Hmm, That's interesting. And so, Arlette, what's his plan for dealing with former President Trump, who is also in the race. Yeah, well, he was asked about that today um, in an interview with Fox News, and he really just completely avoided talking about President Trump. He tried to argue that this is race is about uh, President Biden, the current occupant of the White House, and that is a strategy that you do uh, see uh, at times play out within the Republican Party. But at some point, uh, there is going to have to be this engagement, right, uh, with the big elephant in the room, which is Donald Trump. And he what's sucks. that going to look like? I mean, <laughs> we'll, we'll see exactly. We'll see how he does it. I mean, one thing that's interesting about Tim Scott is he really projects this optimist, you know, happy uh, type of attitude uh, when he tries to talk about the the country. And sometimes that runs contrary to, you know, the uh, abrasive nature that we've seen from the former president himself. So we'll see when Scott uh, actually tries to engage with with Donald Trump. I imagine it might be uh, quite some time. I I always find it interesting as as kind of this person who's not, you know, I don't cover politics, obviously I'm interested in it. But right now there's this thing where everyone just wants to avoid talking about the elephant in the room. And for how much longer can they do that? when he's dominating the news cycle as he is with everything that's going on. And every time they're asked, well, how are you going to fight with Trump? How are you going to go against him? And they just rather avoid that when really that is one of the key issues of the race. You know, it's exactly, you know, when I watch that ad, I, I just think it's like George W. Bush's Republican Party. I feel like that would be the ad that I would expect, you know, George W. Bush or someone who liked George W. Bush to actually run. 
And I just say, does this really fit the moment that we're in? And, you know, you mentioned the fact that, you know, Donald Trump is this big elephant in the room. You know, he's garnering, what, 50 percent of the primary vote at this point? What is Tim Scott getting? One, two percent at he most? He just, just I did an exploratory <laughs> committee. Give him a break. Give Ron, DeSantis, a but, Ron DeSantis hasn't even gotten in. And Ron DeSantis is polling in the 20s, but, if not But the why 30s. not? Why not do it now? Why not try to, yes, it's an exploratory, you know, committee and you're in the early stages. But why not make some noise? Why, why not? not engage? Why no, not? I'm saying that Harry's already dismissing him. They're oh, saying well. he has one percent. He, yeah. Well, just Harry also dismisses me all the time. <laughs> I never do that. No, if that, if that makes you feel any better. No, Arlette, one thing that I wonder and I think about is Senator Scott is known as a, a good fundraiser. He's certainly mm-hmm. known as someone who is well-liked, certainly at least within his party. How much does that factor in when the concern, I think, uh, among the party is that he doesn't have the name recognition? So how important are factors like you can fundraise well, you get along well, well, but you don't have that name recognition yet. Well, with the fundraising, I mean, he does come from a very strong point. He has about $20 million sitting in his campaign account from when he ran for Senate. He is able to raise that money. Raising that money helps you buy ads, helps you get your Mm. name out. But certainly, I mean, he is going to have to be out there shaking the hands, trying to find a way to differentiate himself um, within this party at this time. One thing, you know, I talked to um, someone close to his uh, operation a bit earlier today. They feel that he has an in with evangelical voters. He can talk about his faith very easily. South Carolina is a state with a big evangelical population. Iowa is a state with a big big evangelical population. If you look back to 2016, part of the reason that Ted Cruz was able to win the Iowa caucuses was because of those evangelical voters. So perhaps that would be a way for him to get some recognition Mm -hmm. uh, within Iowa. If you win Iowa, it helps you in New Hampshire, go on to South Carolina. Carolina, and Allison, it could be there. You know what's also interesting? It'll be curious to see if he leans into some of his ideas in terms of his economic policy, right? I mean, he talks about homeownership and just the challenges that we have within the housing industry, uh, and we certainly do. But even in terms of his story, he talked about how he and his mom uh, rented through high school. One thing that's a really big challenge is black homeownership. The black homeownership rate has not budge, has practically not budged in 10 years, right? And so I think even leaning into uh, perhaps some solutions, leaning into some ideas there, his economic policies uh, might be able to win him some some votes, perhaps. I, I, I guess the reason I'm so skeptical yes. is because, you know, I like to look back at history and where candidates were polling who went, eventually went on to win the nomination. And if you're polling in Donald Trump's position, you know, you win what, like 75% of the time? If you're in Ron DeSantis' position, you win something, you know, close to about a third of the time, maybe 40 percent of the time. Someone who's polling in Tim Scott's position at this particular point, given where Trump and DeSantis are polling, they've never won. Now, that doesn't mean they can't, right? History is made to be broken. But I think that's why I'm just so skeptical. That's really interesting, Harry. So in other words, if somebody so it's I would say it's early. It's early. I mean, so you don't think that he can. There's nothing in history that says that somebody can turn it around at this point, if they get in now? Look, given where he's polling, there have been a few examples of people who've been polling less than 5% and gone on to win the nomination. Polling less than 5% at this point. Bill Clinton's one, Jimmy Carter's another one. Even Donald Trump, we don't remember this, but Donald Trump is actually polling less than 5% at this point. But the difference right now is that we have two candidates who are already securing such a large proportion of the vote. And while it is early, it turns out that at least historically, these early polls do, in fact, give us a pretty good indication about who's for real and who's probably just going to be in and we'll say adios amigos to them eventually. And the data reporter would know. 
<laughs> Harry wouldn't. Have. I have no life. It's what I look at. No, I'm aware. Um, so, but Arlette, surely he has seen those numbers, but he's in it for he's getting in it. It appears for a reason. Yeah, and you know this is the time where he can you know test out different messages, try to appeal to different types of groups. Uh, you know there are some who say, oh, this could yes, he's, he wants to run for president, but there are some who say, oh, maybe he's trying out for a number two spot or for something else, trying to build up name recognition for another position, a future run down the line. Um, that could all be factors into it. Of course, his team says now he wants to run or he's exploring whether he fully wants to run. But there yeah. is that element of it as well. In, in terms of where he is on policy, I know it's pretty early, but he has a, a history, a track record, yeah. Shimon, mm-hmm. with um, working on police reform. Right. I mean, this is a George Floyd bill. This is something that he's been part of. But he won't go as far as the Democrats want him to go and certainly you know, folks who are looking for police reform and some of the constraints on policing and some of the other issues. You know, he's more into mental health and giving more money to law enforcement. But some of the key issues that are needed for what police, what people feel, some of the victims of police violence, the reform that's needed, he's not willing to go as far as far. And look, I think coming, I, who knows what's going to happen as we get close, closer to the election. But right now, there's so much focus on guns. And, you know, his stance is very clear, obviously, on guns. And I wonder what's going to happen as we go, you know, through this and, and more deeper into the election and what role guns are going to have in the election and where he's going to stand on this. Yeah. Everybody stick around. Thank you very much for all of that. So, Fox News got in trouble in court today. A judge accused Fox of hiding evidence on the eve of the Dominion defamation trial. But on air, they're telling their voters still what they, well, their viewers, I should say, what they want to hear. Uh, So Harry Enten is here to crunch the numbers for what this looks like, and we'll talk about all of that next. Another twist on the brink of the trial in the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox. The judge today hammering Fox's lawyers for possibly withholding key evidence, saying, quote, I am very concerned that there have been misrepresentations to the court. This is very serious. The judge announcing plans to appoint a special master, meaning an outside attorney, to dig into whether Fox lied about Rupert Murdoch's role, claiming it was not as prominent as it perhaps was. This in an effort to hide evidence, thereby limiting what emails, texts, and documents they had to turn over in discovery. The new sanctions imposed allowed Dominion to conduct more depositions from some key witnesses, and Fox must make those witnesses available and pay for the depositions. Fox is denying any wrongdoing, but this is another black eye for Fox to be accused of lying and misinformation as part of a trial over lying and misinformation. Harry Enten has been reporting on the Fox News audience. Harry, I know you've been crunching the numbers mm. in terms of the audience and what Fox is now reporting on. But before we get to that, I just want to take a beat and talk about this trial and what it means, because it is huge in the media and in, I would say, in the country. I mean, for everything that they ha- that they mean to the country. And so, Shimon, you're saying jury se- selection yeah, starts tomorrow. So jury selection will start tomorrow. We'll see how long that takes. But then there's reports that Rupert Murdoch may be taking the stand as early as Monday. Um, Look, I mean, this trial, I think, is going to be um, one of the 
biggest trials we're probably going to ever cover because it's just going to have so much information. There's all this intrigue about what was going on at Fox. But the thing is, just think about what happened today. A judge is basically accusing Fox lawyers of lying. He basically said it to them. He said to them, an omission is a lie. And what he's accusing them of is refusing to give over discovery, information that is critical to the Dominion attorneys. And every time they're in court and every time something happens, new information comes out and we're like, oh my God. And now you have this judge accusing them of essentially lying, ordering a special master. And we haven't even started this trial. Testimony hasn't even begun. Can you imagine what's going to happen when these guys start testifying and the information that's going to come out? I mean, part of me is skeptical that they will. Part of me feels like Fox will so, settle. I don't know. I have, this has been my whole thing with this case. Why hasn't Fox settled? Now, is it a thing that Dominion is like, you've screwed us over so bad, we're going to punish you and we're going to drag us out as long as we can? Or is it that Fox is just willing to take their chances. And instead of paying the billion dollars that Dominion wants, they rather say, you know what, we're going to go with a jury, let the jury decide. It's not affecting them, though. That's the thing. They're not losing any viewers over this. No, they're not. No, they're not. And in fact, um, their viewers, many of their viewers don't know this is happening because they're They're so locked in an echo chamber that they have never heard that they've been misled through some of this and that the guests made stuff up out of whole cloth and, you know, peddled all of these laws. So that's really interesting if they get away with this without their viewers knowing, you know, what has been happening. I I mean, the fact is they're telling their viewers what their viewers want to hear, right? I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting is when you break down the polling data, right, and you look, okay, do you essentially believe the falsehood that Joe Biden did not legitimately win the election? The vast majority of Fox News viewers believe that. Now, Fox News could tell them, you know, some of their hosts do tell the truth, but some obviously have not been telling the truth. But if the Fox News viewer just wants to go and watch something else, they could. They could go and watch One America News Network or Newsmax, where the even more higher percentage of those viewers don't believe that Joe Biden legitimately won the election. So at the end of the day, you know, I think as we know through all the stuff that's come out, a lot of these hosts made a bet and said, you know what, we're going to double down on what our viewers want to hear, because if we don't, we're afraid they're going to go watch something else. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that we've learned from all of the testimony that's come out in this already is that that's their business model. Give the viewers what they want to hear. But one of the things that you've crunched the numbers on is lately, you know, there was a question of will Fox abandon Donald Trump mm. and will they start to favor Ron DeSantis? And there seemed to be a, a dalliance, a short dalliance with Ron DeSantis where they were doing that. That's changed now. Yeah, that, that definitely is no longer the case. I, I mean, look at how many times Donald Trump has been mentioned. over. How the, many? Look at this. We have a we have a graphic on it, I <laughs> okay, believe. Good, it's good, something good. upwards. Look at this. Three thousand two hundred and nineteen times in the last 30 days, in the last 30 days, Ron DeSantis, just seven hundred and thirty one times. Nikki Haley, one ninety. Mike Pence, one forty three. Tim Scott, fifty six. So if you total up all the other people, they don't even come close to Donald Trump. The fact is, Donald Trump is who the Fox News audience wants to hear about. That's why I had that interview last night with Tucker Carlson, which, of course, was classic Donald Trump, you know, Oh, they, they, the court officers, they were crying. They were crying when I was brought in. Oh, my God. It's like, how many times have you heard that where, you know, you know Donald Trump says, oh, they, they were crying. They were so sad. The grown men were having tears. It's just, you know, it's the same old hits from it was seven years ago or eight years ago. But apparently it still plays with at least some people. But also, you know, and the thing that it doesn't stop some of the, you know, 
the politicians from going on Fox, right? Like politically, I just feel nothing's changed. You know? Yeah, what about that, Arlette? No, I mean, they're going to keep going on Fox because those are the voters that they need to court. And so, so far, nothing that has come up during this uh, pending lawsuit really has changed any politicians factoring. I don't think it will change it just because they know the massive audience that Fox is able to draw in. I think that politicians will continue to go on on there regardless of what happens. Well, am I is it out of the question that they would settle if let's say for one billion dollars, they make so much money. Is it financially that wouldn't destroy them? Oh, no, I don't think it would destroy them. I think what's interesting, though, about this case is that not only does Dominion have to prove that it was defamed, but it then has to prove why it why it should get $1.6 billion, right? And there are a few things to think about in terms of damages. It's the actual business losses, it's the potential business losses, and it's reputational damage. So Dominion says for its part, look, we've lost 20 customers, we've lost 39 jurisdictions that we were uh, potential opportunities. And perhaps that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you actually look at some of their contracts with some states and different jurisdictions— Some of these contracts are worth tens of millions of dollars each, right? So Dominion is saying, look, we've lost money, we've lost business opportunities, but it's also the reputational damage that it's claiming because of this defamation, which is a lot harder to prove. It's a lot harder to prove. It's a lot harder to quantify. It's very hard to figure out what they could have made, what they, you know, how many of us heard of Dominion before this, right? And so I think for the future, it destroyed them. It completely destroyed uh, the company. But this question of of settlement, I I just, for me, in following this, it has always been, why would Fox want all this information to come out? And maybe they gambled and they thought, well, this would never come out. And we're seeing indications from the court that they're still hiding information. So perhaps, you know, to your point, Rahel, I think, it's, it could be that they're going to say, you know what, we're going to lose this case, but we may win on damages. So you know what, we'll wait. We'll, yeah. we'll just get this to a jury. And then on damages, perhaps that is where they will Meaning succeed. it could be lower than 1.6 Right, it could billion. be lo- lower. And also, look, you, they, you know, if they win this case somehow, it's going to be a huge victory for them. A huge victory for them. No one sees how that's possible. But imagine if they do. You never know. So perhaps the gamble in all of this for them is let's just go. Like the money, there's no way that the money is an issue here, right? For them, I can. For Fox, yeah. Yeah, for Fox, for a billion dollars. Or it could be Dominion's like, we don't want it. Let's just keep going. I, I think it's interesting when you say something like, oh, maybe they weren't anticipating this. You know, when I was a kid, I looked up to my, my parents. I said, oh, wow, they really know what they're doing. You know, when I first, you know, started working with people who were a little bit older than me, I said, man, they really know what they're doing. And the older I get, the more I realize how little I know well, now. Well, should, how little most people know. Should we talk about what we were talking about during the break? How we thought our parents had it all together? And then as we became adults, we realized this is really hard. So, so your argument is maybe they have no idea what they're doing. Maybe and they have just, no idea. They're just gambling. Well, just, the other thing we're is all winging it. that Fox could be lying to their lawyers. I mean, clients, you know, that look, I mean... I'm not saying there's any proof of that, but we have to see what will be developed as this. The fact that they are bringing in an outside lawyer, the judge is so furious there. He's bringing in an outside person to figure out what the hell is going on here because he's, you know, the judge is just saying, I'm done. I'm sick of it. And we need to figure out what is going on here. One thing I will say in terms of this is something that I found really interesting today, just in terms of preparation, is that uh, Dominion was obscure before 2020, right? But the entire industry... It's pretty obscure. I mean, when you look at some of the other, Dominion is one of the top three of these sort of uh, voting Voting systems, systems, right? So it it was obscure, but still a major player. And so when you have that type of market concentration, you know, 
it'll, it'll be interesting to see what their damage is and what the sort of impact to them negatively, if so, was. All right, friends, thank you very Stay much for tuned. all of that. We want to get to this. Louisville police releasing the 911 calls from that deadly mass shooting at the bank. Shimon has details on a call for help from inside the building and a frantic call from the shooter's mother to 911. Louisville police releasing 911 calls from the mass shooting at the bank where five people were killed. One of those calls was from a woman hiding in a closet. Has anybody been shot? Yes. How many people? I don't know. Probably eight or nine. Eight or nine people have been shot? Uh Uh-huh. Are you with any of them? Yes, but I'm in a closet hiding. I hear gunshots. Is that shoot shots fired? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So awful. CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Prokupes has been working this story. Shimon, it's so awful to hear these anguished calls. And I'm just wondering, why did police release them? I mean, the shooter in this case is dead. What's the law enforcement purpose? Of so, police? look, I think we're at a point in this country where people need to understand how horrific this is. And I think law enforcement is just tired of hiding behind any kind of secrecy or not telling us exactly what happened, because I think it's important for people to understand how horrific these moments are for people's lives to witness this kind of carnage, to have to hide in a room and not sure that you're going to live every second. I mean, that woman on that phone call was like, that wasn't a very long call, but she was on the phone When are they getting here? When are they getting here? And that is the reason why. I I think in part why they released. The other part is just legally they have to. You know, we're going to ask for it. Others are going to ask for it. And it needs to come out. And I'm sure if someone objected to it, some of the family members or someone, they may not have, but they gave fair notice to the the people involved, to the victims, to the others, that they were going to do this. And so they put it out. And I, I personally, I think it's important for people to listen. I've listened to way too many of these including children, but it's important because perhaps, perhaps somehow some change would happen. I mean, I'd like to believe that, you know, obviously the the other argument is that we're getting numb to it. Um, Either way, I'm obviously I'm for transparency. Obviously we fight for transparency and particularly you in terms of, you know, we do these FOIA requests of the police and we do want to know what's happened, but listening to it, It's just really hard. It's hard, and it's certainly hard in the moment. And no matter how many times you listen to it, it doesn't get easier. You know, the other thing that the police did today was, and we don't normally get this, is that they released the 911 call from the mother, the mother of the gunman, the shooter. She gets a call from his roommate who says he left a note here describing what he was about to do. And she makes this frantic call to police asking for help to take a listen to that. Yes, my um, I could, my my son might be having to have a gun and he's heading toward the old national at uh, on Main Street here in Louisville. Main Street, old national. Yes, and I, this is his mother. I'm so sorry. I'm getting details secondhand. I'm running into it now. Oh my lord. Okay. And what exactly is going on with him? Why? What? It, what is he saying he's doing? I don't know. I'm getting this information from the roommate. He apparently left a note. He, he's never heard me once. He's a really good kid. Please don't come up to him. His roommate called me. His roommate's very concerned. Please, he, he's not violent. Mm-hmm. He's never done anything. Please, just... 
Okay, and you don't believe he owns guns? I know he doesn't own any guns. Gosh, that's so incredible, Shimon, to hear that, because that's different than what we think of as the profile of a mass shooter, where she says he's not violent. Please don't punish him. He doesn't own any guns. That's so different. Often what we hear parents say is, yeah, he's been acting really strangely. Um, We know that he has been, you know, whatever, hurting animals. Like there are usually warning signs that the parents know, but he wasn't living with his mother. But that's just so different than what we normally hear. Right. And and just to you, you know, just to make that point even clearer, like when the Nashville shooting happened, um, that shooter, the parents were aware that this person liked guns, had guns and, and told this person, get the guns out of the house and believed that the guns were taken out of the house. Um, yeah, I think you make a good point there, that this, the profile here is a little different. Um, and obviously you could tell the complete shock from the mother, but most mothers are shocked when their kids wind up doing this. Of course, of course. Yeah. Arlette, I mean, I know this is a totally futile question, but I'm going to ask it because maybe something has you know, shaken loose on Capitol Hill. When something like this happens, do they talk about it? Do they talk about having a meeting? Do they talk about, do the politicians talk about what are we going to do now? I mean, I think you often just see kind of people kind of retreat into their corners with Democrats saying we need uh, stronger gun restrictions. We need assault weapons bans. That's something Biden calls for over and over. And, and Republicans saying, no, we need more investments in, in mental health and trying to go that route. Um, but we had this shooting Monday, the week before uh, Nashville, and it, it just doesn't seem like anything is really shaking the conversation loose when it comes to gun control up on Capitol Hill. You know, Biden has said he has done everything that he can. Has he? Has via, he done every executive I mean, order he's, that he's, he's done? He's done a lot. Point? What he wants to see is the assault weapons ban. He wants to see more background checks. And that just is not going to happen. unless can't do pe- that single No, he, unless people are elected to Congress. Now, one thing that Biden argues is that he wants people to put the pressure on their lawmakers or elect people into Congress who can pass that kind of stuff. I think what you saw in Tennessee, um, you did see really these animating forces. So many people upset about what happened, upset about the fact that the Republican-led State House wasn't doing more. Um, We'll see if gun control can actually be a big motivator when it comes to the next election. But I think until the makeup is changed in, in Congress, not much more is going to get done. There was modest uh, reform that was passed last summer in the wake of Uvalde, uh, but people pretty much are in their corners at this point. I, I also feel, and I think maybe Harry could talk about this more, just sort of people you know, that I have talked to who are victims of these horrific situations and her- horrific crimes are just hopeless, that there will be any kind of change, you know, and that just they don't feel the numbers are there. The support is there. But people are doing it at the, at the, I mean, just so that people don't feel entirely hopeless, they are doing it at the state level. I mean, you know, Connecticut has done things after Sandy Hook. And as you know, Florida has done things after Parkland. And maybe that's what it takes. I mean, I hate to hear people that are- In Texas, certainly. I mean, you know, the Uvalde families are just crushed over the fact that nothing can be done. And they've been working so hard to try and get stuff done. And they, it's impossible. I mean, Arlette was sitting on it, right? Everyone just goes into their partisan corners. You know, you mentioned Connecticut, very blue state. Florida is an interesting example, right? Which is not a very blue state. In fact, it's a state that's becoming more red where we actually did see some things occur there. Maybe that gives us some hope as a nation that things can occur even in states where you might not expect it. But the fact is, is that we are further apart on guns and our views of guns and gun control than we've been in the last 50 years in this country. 
So, you know, when we started this segment, I'll be honest with you, you know, maybe it's the late hour, but my mind was so scrambled. I thought we were going to be talking about Nashville. I really was. Because it's just, they're happening so often and so close together, your mind gets confused and it can lead to you becoming numb. And that's something I think we all have to just fight so much against. You're not alone. I mean, we just, in in my last panel an hour ago, there was confusion too, because it's hard for us to keep track at this point when we're reporting every single week. Do you, do you really think people will, is there, is that, is that a real fear that people are going to get dumb? Yes, I think so. Because I think that we're just protecting our own mental health. You can't focus on, you can't hear too many of those 911 calls without it really having a visceral and sickening effect on you. I would also add, in addition to seeing uh, different groups sort of, you know, hide to their different partisan corners, we're also hearing silence from some groups like corporate America, right? And maybe part of that is because they feel like it is way too hot to touch and because we are so divided that they feel like, look, unless there's an incentive for me to insert myself into this really controversial, really, uh, you know, hot topic, we're going to stay out of it altogether. But that has also been deafening, that you haven't really seen a lot of uh, major corporations step up and take a position. That's such a good point, because after some school shootings they did, and at this time with this spate of shootings, they haven't. Um, all right, everybody, stick around, because there is actually good news to get to about inflation. It fell to its lowest level in nearly two years. Rahel is going to break down what this means for price of, the price of gas and groceries and all the credit card debt that Americans have racked up. We'll be right back. Okay, now for a bit of good news. Inflation has fallen to its lowest levels since May of 2021. This is the ninth consecutive month where inflation is down and gas prices are down more than 17% from 2022. But prices are still high for food and housing. And there's still trouble with consumer credit card bills, where debt is now at a record high. CNN's business correspondent, Rahel Solomon, is here to fill us in. So, Rahel, first, what's the answer for credit card debt? So we all know we're not supposed to have it, right? But life is what it is. And so sometimes you do have it. So what do you do if you are carrying credit card debt? Well, Ted Rossman of Bankrate, a senior industry analyst, tells me CreditCards.com says, try to transfer it over to a 0% balance transfer, right? Lock in 0%. So move that from a 21%. And I should say that credit card rates, by the way, are at record highs at 20.21% on average. They've never been higher than that, right? So move it over to uh, lock in a 0% balance transfer. He says uh, that'll give you some time to move it over, gives you 21 months, in some cases as much as 21 months. And so then you can, as long as you don't add to it, sort of 21 months, divide up the amount, pay it off every month, and just try to get it over with. So if inflation is coming down, great news. Why is food still so high? It takes a long time to have inflation come down, right? And so there are some factors. Food, food inflation can be really volatile because it depends on what's happening with weather. It depends on what's happening with livestock. So many different things. But we can show you just some of the examples. If you're going to the grocery store and you're hearing inflation is down, but you're looking at some of these categories thinking, uh-uh, not really, right? So, I mean, you can see eggs, they've come down 10.9% on a monthly basis. But we should say, I mean, egg prices have been very high. They're still higher than they were a year ago. Uh, lettuce prices have come down. Banana has come down. Uh, but breakfast cereals, they, they have still gone up. So you're still feeling that pinch when you go to the grocery store. This was supposed to be the year of significant declines in inflation. That's what the Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell said. 2023 will be a year of significant declines. 
I don't know if we're at the significant part of it yet, but we are seeing declines because 5% on an annual basis. Guys, remember when we were talking about inflation at 9.1% in mm. June? Mm. I mean, it, it got mm. really, really... Harry, what was <laughs> the most expensive drama. thing you paid for? Come yeah, on. What, what is the most expensive yeah, thing? Yeah, I don't know that... I, uh, I, the most expensive thing would have been the trip that I took to Woodstock, Vermont yeah, last week. there you week. go. Okay. That, so that was the most expensive But I don't know if that is inflation. Or <laughs> right. you know, no. Oh, that was Harry doesn't like to spend money. Focus, Harry. Focus, Harry. The thing I don't like about that is now I have to pay a lot more for my cookie crisp cereal. So there we are. But yeah. Now we're getting. Now we're getting yeah. the important yeah. thing. Yeah. Harry, right. But the yeah. bananas being, uh, you know, that that's good because now I can eat healthier. So <laughs> okay. Less carbs, more fruits. Okay, so you fantastic. weren't eating healthier because of the right. price. That, yeah. That's that's, that's right. why. Yes, we're going with that. <laughs> yeah. Yes, okay. absolutely. Okay, Arlette. Um, is it too soon to figure out what impact this will have on 2024? I mean, things no. can change, right? Before then, oh, or yeah. is it already because gas be prices have started to come back down, but they're back, also on their way back up. Yeah, I mean, things things can change, but the White House and the president are fully aware of what a liability this can be heading into 2024. I mean, Harry knows well this is mm. the top concern to all American voters is how much things are costing them, uh, how much money they're going to have saved for the future. These are all things that people are taking into consideration. And the president, you know, they're trying to promote things that they're doing. You know, they're trying to take credit for some of these uh, jobs that are being created overall in the economy, but also announcement that announcements companies are making about investments for the future, trying to talk about how that ties back to their plans. But bottom line is many Americans are just still not feeling like they're doing well. Even if inflation is uh, slowly uh, dropping a bit, it's just still something that isn't hitting people just yet. This so, is still the number one when people say what's most important to you, economy is number one. Yeah, it, when you, inflation is number one, you know, you can look at it in so many different ways, right? I think what's so interesting, though, is you know, you try and analyze voter behaviors, how odd this economy is in some ways, right? You know, inflation's still high, although it's coming down, but unemployment is incredibly low. So as a voter, you know, you're trying to say, is this economy good? Is it bad? I'm but are people poor. getting raises? Like, like so I know, that's point. the thing. Like, are, are, is, are the raises, are the money that people are making, isn't no. matching what's, what reality is? And I, it's a really, really great point, Shimo. The, the truth is that it does depend on industries, right? So in some industries, we're seeing that wages have actually outpaced inflation. But by and large, you know, I mean, certainly when inflation was at 9%, I mean, unless you got a 10% bump, it, it wasn't, right? And so I think that is the tough reality of this environment that we're in, that job creation is plentiful. Can you get a job? Absolutely. Maybe you got a raise. That's great. But is it keeping up with inflation? Maybe not. And so even if you are making more, you still feel like you're bringing home less. And that is a really tough position to be in. You know, even though my uh, Twitter handle is Forecaster Enten, you know, I, I know how difficult it is to forecast the economy. It's like basically impossible. I mean, it's like trying to predict the economy a year from now is like trying to predict the weather a year from now. I, I talked to Mohammed Alarian, who's a very prominent economist, uh, a few weeks ago on uh, CNN International, and I asked him how tough forecasting this economy is. He said it's never been tougher. It has never been tougher for people who have, doing, have been doing this for decades to try to understand what's coming down the road. So nothing it's, makes it's, sense, right? It's like nothing, nothing is what it's, nothing's aligning. It well, you know why? I mean, the pandemic did right. so many yeah. things to the economy in terms of the supply chains, in terms of the stimulus checks, in terms of uh, just the fact that we weren't spending because we were all at home. And so that really did a lot of different things. And so we're all sort of living through, as one economist told me from the National Bureau of Economic Research, we're all living through one great experiment. 
<laughs> oh, great. Very comforting. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Well, even if forecasting is hard, I am going to ask you all to forecast what the news for tomorrow is going to be. <laughs> Harry's going to do the weather. They're gonna, yes. Harry's going to forecast the weather, and they're going to share their big scoops for tomorrow. We have tomorrow's news tonight. That's next. Okay, moments ago, and maybe you can see on your screen, former President Donald Trump arriving at Trump Tower for the second time in just over a week to sit for a deposition. This time, it's a civil lawsuit filed by New York Attorney General Letitia James. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. Meanwhile, we're back with our panel of reporters, so let's find out what stories they will be watching tomorrow. It's tomorrow's news tonight. Arlette, what are you doing for tomorrow? Well, I think a big focus tomorrow is going to be on this medication abortion case. Um, The Justice Department had asked the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to issue a stay in the order because that Texas federal judge, he had put a pause until this coming Friday um, from allowing his ruling to go into effect. So there's just lots of questions about whether this medication abortion is going to be available to American consumers uh, past Friday. So I think that's something that we'll be watching to see whether the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, rules on that. Additionally, Joe Biden is off being Joe Biden in Ireland. And so we will see what other antics he gets up to during the day. I think tomorrow is a lot more official. You know, today he went and toured some of the areas that were important to his own ancestral history. Uh, Tomorrow he's meeting with the prime minister and and other officials. But this is something people have been waiting for for some time for Biden to return. Got it. Okay, Uh, Shimon, what are you working on? So for tomorrow, you know, digging in more on the uh, shooting in uh, Louisville, there's this note we're trying to figure out that the roommate uh, found that was told to about the mother was given information about. So we're hoping to learn more because it, it, it should shed some light on motive and what exactly was going on uh, in, in his life. And so that's really, that's the thing. You know, everyone's trying to figure out exactly why he did it. It's not clear. Clearly something going on at work, perhaps. Well, also they said that he had mental health struggles. And yeah. I think we would all like to know what those were. Yeah. But yeah. The mother said, you know, there's some depression issues maybe, but... There's got to be something deeper, right? It's, uh, I don't know. I yeah. mean, but I think it would just be helpful because we're always trying to figure out how to stop yeah. it. Um, okay, Rahel, what are you uh, keeping an eye on for tomorrow? Um, so I'm actually interviewing some uh, one of the Nissan executives, the U.S. CEO, and so I'll be talking to him about their electrification plans. I mean, we've talked so much, even on the show this week, about EV, and so we've gotten some new data from a Gallup, I think it was, where 41% of Americans say they actually don't plan to buy an EV because they're concerned about range anxiety, right? Where do they charge these EVs? Also worried about the cost. And so, you know, I think when I speak with him tomorrow, I'll be asking certainly about their plans, but also what they uh, plan to do to try to get over some of those obstacles with American consumers. Harry, I understand you're very concerned about your namesake. That's exactly right. Big I'm very, story. This is the big one. You know, obviously, King Charles is having his coronation soon in the next <laughs> month or so. And uh, Prince Harry has announced that he is uh, going to go and attend that. But the Duchess, uh, Meghan, uh, is uh, not, in fact, going to attend. And I'm just interested from a public opinion standpoint (laughs) whether Prince Harry can revive his popularity over in the U.K. So I think there's just a lot of stories across the pond, whether it be Joe Biden going over, um, whether it be Prince Harry going back. So, you know, look, we, we came from there. We, we had declared our independence, but I still find interest it's a big in scoop. our former homeland. Is Harry, <laughs> is Harry Enten attending the coronation? Um, you know, if we can get the higher-ups <laughs> at this company to pay for it, I would be more than happy to okay. join our friends over across the pond to be an official 
um, Palace Report. Of course, got it. All right. Be, uh, thank you all very much for all of that. We'll look forward to all of that tomorrow. And also be sure to tune in to CNN this morning tomorrow. What happens when artificial intelligence gets it wrong and makes false accusations? They're going to look into a high school student's cautionary tale. All right. Thanks so much for watching tonight. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.